0: Honey, I blew up the business. Welcome to the podcast. We've got Mark Fawcett here today. Great to see you, Mark. You too, Dan. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased and excited to speak to you because Mark is a long-standing entrepreneur and adventurer,
1: yeah. which is okay.
0: actually, that's probably two sides of the same coin, entrepreneurship and adventureship. He's the founder and chief executive of We Are Futures, which is a brand and social impact agency that works with some of the biggest companies in the world to connect them to the consumers, the customers, the the, the new markets of the future, so the young people. Uh, But We Are Futures was previously known as the National Schools Partnership, which Mark founded in 2004, which is a network of of 100,000 teachers, experts, and leaders across schools and colleges across the world. I won't list all the countries, there are quite a lot of them. And he's a trustee of the British Exploring Society, plus previously a captain in the British Army. So he's yeah, he's got those strong credentials there in uh, adventuring and, and entrepreneuring, which we will be getting into. But to remind everybody, this podcast is brought to you by my company, The One I Blew Up, hence the name of the podcast, uh, The Tech Department. Thank you, Tech Department, for supporting us. Uh, I blew up the company and I really shouldn't have, uh, and so I don't want to do that again. So that's why I'm speaking to Mark, because maybe he'll tell me and not to blow up my company I'm, I'm searching for the answers talking to great entrepreneurs uh, so if you like what we're doing i'm trying to help people like you and help uh, other entrepreneurs so please share the podcast give us a five-star review on apple podcast particularly and uh, help us out throw me a bone so so let's get into it i, I'm, I'm, I, I did find out that mark's got a bit of a history with um, uh, entrepreneurship and uh, his, his sort of entrepreneurial tendencies go back quite a long way even before it was official. So, so when, when were you first getting into the sort of
1: entrepreneurial instinct? I think as a as a teenager, one thing that uh, I was thinking about um, myself. I'm I'm one of three brothers. All three of us run our own businesses. Um, so my brothers have more than one business between themselves, and a lot of that uh, I think is is influenced by our mother, who who set up her own business, her own um, beauty salons, uh, trained herself, set up. Three shops in the West Country where we were brought up. And, and so we've had parents around us doing their own business since we were young. And that has just been the environment we were brought up in. And I think that's hugely influential. And it even manifested itself. And I was always looking for ways to make a bit of extra cash as a teenager. And I recall one day borrowing um, one of my mother's beauty salon pieces of equipment, it was a, a, a gun for piercing ears. And I took it to school. And over a break time, I pierced 15 boys' ears, all about 13, 14 years old. So all these boys came into school without ear piercings and went home to mum and dad with ear piercings. And, and I charged about 50p to a pound each. So I, I did quite well from that. Um, except as you can imagine, that, that sort of blew up in rather a messy way that evening when all the parents got onto the school. school quickly worked it all out and got onto, onto me. Somehow I survived at that school. I had to return the money. But I, I guess that was my first business that blew up in less than 24 hours. There you go.
0: Um, that's, that's, a, that's,
1: a quite, that's, that's what we call a direct feedback loop. Yes, from the very swift. Loop. Yes. Yeah. Um, and even then after that, that just, just little things. When I, I went to University of Liverpool and found out that you could buy cotton boxer shorts from the um, market stalls in Liverpool for about seventy p, I think, and you could sell them at home in Somerset and Taunton for about two pounds fifty. And so, every time I came to or from university, I'd go north with gallons and gallons of of West Country scrumpy cider, which I'd sell in Liverpool, and then I'd come home with bags and bags of cotton boxer shorts, which I'd sell in Somerset. So. It was more sort of a, a West Country Del Boy approach rather than sort of solid business thinking. But, but it was always just fun trying to, to look for ways to, to make a bit more cash at the time. The
0: West Country Del Boy. Well, can, I, can I suggest you update your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> I'll be trying to forget that, actually, now that I've said that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, don't worry. The internet never forgets. Um it's, it's, right, so you've had this sort of uh, this instinct for uh, entrepreneurship, trying to make some money, seeing spotting opportunities, taking things from one place, putting it into another. And then you've had this sort of, you went um, at some point, I'm, at some point, I'm assuming after university, into the army. What was your degree in, by the way?
1: My degree was in economics and history. And after leaving university, I uh, I tried my hand at something else. I was selling water filters at some point, um, not particularly successfully. But I I was great. I was looking around for what I was going to do. And a number of friends of mine from university had gone to the army. I went and visited them at the this big ball they have at the end of their training, and I just thought, what a great party! So I'll join the army and. It was a shock to to my parents, to my friends, ultimately even to myself, because I had absolutely no previous thought about it. I really had no um, family background in it, so yeah, it was a big, big shock—culture shock, shock actually. When I when I started uh, officer training at Sandhurst, so you had this kind of
0: um, you're a big adventure in the army. I think you were in the forces for five years. Yeah. And looking back at that time that five year period, do you think there's any kind of particular lessons that you learnt that you apply in your entrepreneurial life
1: absolutely um, I mean some of them only in hindsight, perhaps even decades later, but you certainly you learn about the difference between leadership and 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 sort of management in a way um, so much emphasis is upon leadership you learn about planning, you learn about decision making. uh, And also you do that in an environment where if you get it wrong, you know, really bad things might happen, people might die. Um, Whereas if you get it wrong in business, some people might lose some money or or even worse, they might lose their jobs. But but hopefully, unless you're a very particular type of business, really, really bad things aren't going to happen. So I also learned a lot of context. Um, I learned certainly about working with a huge variety of people, both in terms of background, uh, education, culture, language. So a hu- huge amount came out of those, those five years. It was a very formative uh, experience, which I'm always have been really pleased I did. So you were in, I think it was in the mid-90s, 1995, you were kind of leaving
0: the um, army and you got a job. And this is a job which you ended up to be, to lead, going on to lead the business and, and grow it. But what I was curious about is you kind of had, so you've had your sort of early entrepreneurial instincts and you've had your university in uh, career and you take this kind of left-hand swerve into the army for a period of time and kind of soak all this stuff in even without really realizing it. And then you, but you're in this big organization. You're kind of, again, like going through school, going through university, you're sort of institutionalized and given a structure. And you go into the... Military and there's a structure and an, an organized sort of uh, uh, structure. But you go into a small business, and I imagine one that's kind of uh, uh, you know, small and growing that has less has less structure. And how does that? I was curious to how, how does that transition go for you? And uh, and what did you again? What did you think you learned from now? What, what was the kind of what was that time like?
1: Well, I think one of the things that was very apparent in a, in a small business, and this was joining World Challenge at the time, was how quickly you could make things happen, or an organization can make things happen if you if you had a plan or someone had an idea and and it felt that was a good idea, you could do it immediately um, and that I thought was always very exciting and uh, since then i 've always worked in, in small and medium sized organizations where you can you can make things happen and you can influence them and even though when I first joined World Challenge, uh I just come out of, you know, a role in the army with a certain amount of responsibility and and suddenly I was being sort of micromanaged and checked up on for everything I did, which was a bit of a, a shock for a moment. But I understood, you know, I needed to earn people's trust. But once you've got that trust, um I found it such an exciting period for a number of years because we grew um very quickly. Um I ran the training of, of the leaders and the young people take part then I ran the marketing sales and ultimately I was the managing director but I worked with the most amazing people there and when we when we thought let's try something let's do something new we we just did it so it's exciting and and most of what we did worked really well. So, so this is a company called World Challenge is that
0: right and, and mm-hmm. so could you just describe quick, briefly what, what World Challenge was about?
1: Um, Well, it changed a lot during that period. But ultimately, what it became about was um, using the medium of, of outdoor adventure and expeditions around the world as an accelerated, effectively, character development management training program for teenagers. So they would spend... A year and a half learning about, let's say, a country, Peru, and planning their own expedition to Peru and raising their money for it and training for it. And then when they went on the expedition, they would actually lead it. So the kids themselves would be responsible for making decisions for a month about everything they were going to eat, traveling together as a group, the challenges they're under, going to undertake. And most adults have never, ever spent a month with just one group of people. And it was a fantastic vehicle for for these young people to just accelerate their their development, their learning, their sort of growing up, really. Um, and so we, you know, we we turned it from an organization running about twenty expeditions a year to running about three hundred and fifty expeditions a year. Um, launched it in the United States as well, and and ultimately, but after I left, it was um, it was bought, taken over by TUI uh, under their Adventure Travel Group that's okay so what what sort of time frame was this that was over about a seven year period um up until about 2002 you've left the army you've got into
0: this role in in a small business that you were instrumental in growing and internationalizing and perhaps giving it a more uh more social purpose perhaps within that in terms of its focus and and then you got it you were in managing director hot seat level and then you left. So what happened? What happened um, next?
1: What happened next is I thought, all right After all this time of 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 running training with soldiers and then running training with young people, I thought I need to I need to step away from that. Otherwise, um, as much fun as it was, I don't just want to be carrying a rucksack around the hills all my life. I want to be doing something a bit different. So I was uh, I. Uh, and uh, a role as managing director of a small tech company called Zingo. Um, and this was a learning experience. So Zingo was set up to allow people to hail and speak to the drivers of taxis directly from their mobile phone. Um, and uh it wasn't Uber. <laughs> so... It, it's, it had a lot of really good tech in it. Um, and we set it up in London. Um, so it's dealing with a lot of the black cab drivers of London, getting them involved with this. Um, and it, it was going okay. It didn't prove out to, it didn't work out in the end. So there I was, um, as, as managing director of a company that wasn't working. And that then uh, again, so much comes out of what you what you learn from that. Um, I learned that it wasn't right for me to lead a deep tech organization. Um, I learned that if you're having to sell something really, really hard, really hard, possibly it's not the right product at that moment in time, or not right for that market. Um, and that in the end was I was there for less than two years altogether um, before I was asked to think about a different career path by the end of the
0: business. Right. Okay. So so you've had this like period of time in the early or mid noughties, perhaps is, this is where you've had this sort of um, experience at world challenge, which was probably, I'm sure there's it's challenges, but it's a, you know, it was a path in your career development and the thing grew by 10 times and it was expanding internationally and you, moved on, but, and this had gone, to, then the company went on to be acquired. And you went on for the sort of brave new world of tech and taking off your rucksack. So, but it didn't work out. So I've got two questions for you. One is, was there a moment when you realized that this wasn't working out?
1: Yes. Um, I realized it. I realized I was probably a, a, a sort of fish out of water in that business, relatively early on but um but it was exciting you know it was it was tech startup it was backed by um uh, a, a PLC a small PLC um it was in a really interesting world working very closely with sort of um all the taxi driving backpack community of London that was an eye opener um but I knew within a year that uh the both the business concept itself had issues. Um, it didn't really have, on a tech level, basically today we all take for granted our mobile phones have GPS in them. And at this moment, at that point in time, mobile phones didn't have GPS in them. Uh, most of them didn't. So you couldn't accurately position them, which for a, for a service like that was a real problem. Um, and I also realized actually it didn't hugely excite me. So, There were a number of things coming together, and and I I pushed hard, hard to make it all work. But ultimately, it it wasn't a success. Um, And yeah, it was, for me personally, I learned a lot during that about what I did want to do, what I was good at, um, and that helped me think about where I go next.
0: And so so how did you feel then when you were kind of exiting stage right, perhaps rather than stage left from this, 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 this setup, it hadn't gone to plan. You'd kind of, you know, it not worked for whatever reason. And, and I'm sure that that's kind of, you know, it wasn't quite the story you wanted to tell about yourself and to yourself. So how was it feeling then as you kind of were asked to leave politely? It doesn't feel,
1: doesn't feel great. I mean, you know, at the time, um, my wife and I had two, children, the two girls were were born by then um got a mortgage you know we we need to earn the money. She had a great job um thankfully uh but but you don't want it's not comfortable to feel hang on, I was not successful at that um and in this country especially it's not quite seen as the the learning curve, the building blocks that actually help you move forward. There are other countries, I think, particularly, you know, in the States where that's almost a rite of passage, really. So yes. it didn't feel good at the time. Um, now, looking back on it, you know, those worries were maybe out of proportion, really. So, 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 what, so again, looking back at it
0: and just sitting in that moment, so you're you're there on the street shuffling out of the office with the, Two daughters, the mortgage, and the pride—perhaps the sort of sense of like that's not the way it should have been, kind of thing. So, yeah. what, what what were the lessons that, almost from a personal point of view, in that moment of, all right, I'm not being going to be celebrated for failure here. I'm going to be perhaps judged for it. How, how do you sort of take that 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 moment and move forward?
1: I think again, the um, part of the background training that the military gave me, and I think gives a lot of people is. I mentioned earlier the context that there are often bigger things at stake than the fact that you don't have a job that particular moment of time there are other jobs where you can start something yourself which is where you know we headed in the end um also one thing you can't do when you're when you're in the army especially if you're in a position of commander you can't just hang around feeling sorry for yourself you can't not keep moving things forward, even if you've made such an almighty screw-up or cock-up or something. You've got to get on. You've got to do a new plan. You've got to move forward. And those things, you know, I have I, a I sort of rule, which I always talk to my team at work about sometimes, which is a 24-hour hangover, if you want. And I don't mean a hangover from drinking. I mean, if something bad happens, like in our line of work, if you pitch for a big piece of business and, you, and you're gutted because you lose it, hmm. you've got 24 hours to be all unhappy and down about that and then get over it, get on. And and whatever it is, it, we use that just 24 hours and then um, put your fighting face back on and, and get on. Mm, okay. Those sort of things formed my thinking at that time and I was pretty swiftly into, right, okay, that's history already. Let's, let's get forward. So what, 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 did, what did forward look like? Well, I wasn't too sure immediately, um, and so I had another number of conversations, um, spoke to headhunters, and light spoke to friends of mine. But I was pretty certain by this time, having been an MD of two other organizations, one, the one I just left as a subsidiary uh, to a PLC, and the other a privately owned SME, I just thought, look, this is the time now that if I'm ever going to um, – do something myself where I can call shots, where I can, you know, uh, I can achieve, but also take responsibility. Does go right? So I had a very strong feeling about having seen other place of work. What I wanted the place of work I was going to be in to feel like that. This was the time to um to to go it alone, really.
0: So so you you're there and you the runes are being read and it says do it. So so how did you um. Decide what to do. I mean, what what, what was the
1: entrepreneurial entrepreneurial leap? It was actually there. There were two um, two friends at the time who were who were major catalysts in this decision. I remember conversations I was having with them about um, just around the areas of, of marketing, young people, corporate responsibility, education. We were just having these conversations. They were in. They had their jobs and their career paths that they were heading down. And, and I was thinking, well, maybe I can actually try and set something up based from the conversations we're having. And that was the seed of what became National Schools Partnership. though ultimately what it became was very, very different to what we were discussing at that point in time. So it was a lot of conversations, a lot of thinking um and, and that led to to doing something new, uh, which is one of the hardest, I think, routes into for an entrepreneur, into sort of setting up your own business is when you go and try and do something brand new that isn't really being done anywhere else. It's it's much easier, much easier to maybe pick an area where there are things already doing and just do them better, you know set up a dry cleaner, but just do it better than anyone else does it, better service. And, and there'll be so much there to help you, you go and do that. And so ultimately, when we set up National Schools Partnership, we set it up with one idea in mind of what it would be. And that was sort of the A revenue stream. And then we had a B revenue stream of little things that would probably spin off it. And ultimately, the business became a hundred percent about those B revenue streams, and the A revenue stream turned out to be a really bad idea that almost sunk the business.
0: Wow. Well, okay. So, on the subject of sinking businesses, which is the specialist topic in our uh, podcast. So, what what happened? When was the, did Plan A become the uh, sort of Titanic plan, as it were, the thing that, that was going to sink sink things?
1: What, what what was that? And how did how did that kind of yeah. The idea at the beginning was that it would be a form of loyalty program. You know, Nectar wasn't that old at that that moment of time, but it would be a form of loyalty program for schools so that when families chose to buy certain products or from certain retailers, their schools would earn points. And we set up National Schools Partnership Points. Lots of schools started reading through these points and they could convert those points into deals to get cheaper stationery, they could get money back on, a whole load of things like that. But we went down that route. Um, we took an investment, uh, which we could talk about. That was another interesting uh, pathway. And, But ultimately, we didn't go big enough and bold enough on that idea. We didn't put the tech in place that would have been Really substantial for a proper proper loyalty um, loyalty based sort of purchasing program, but um, in doing that for the first clients and partners we had, we helped them construct how they might do the marketing um, and ultimately the loyalty program piece the the single most important decision I've made in eighteen years of this business was. To completely stop that program about a year and a half in, um, when it was clear it was gonna, it was clear it wasn't going to succeed, um, to switch the entire business over to focus on this this B revenue stream, this doing sort of at, at the beginning sort of marketing programs, marketing campaigns, if you want, um, and I wasn't even entirely sure what direction the business would be taking, but. We made decisions. We got on with it. Those proved to be the right decisions. And and that really is the start of the success journey, um, as opposed to the first year and a half, which were painful, very painful.
0: This first year and this is sort of 18 months then, when plan A was sort of like like scraping your fingernails down a blackboard, like <laughs> a painful experience. What, what, what sort of ultimately was the
1: moment you thought this can't go on? Well, we... We took a bit of family and friends investment up front. I was then, you know, I'd gone from a managing director level salary down to something about, um, about an eighth of that. Um, the I remember my wife, Tanya, was pregnant with our third child, um, so she'd stopped working. So we were at a moment where we'd gone from two managing director salaries to one person earning about an eighth of one of those salaries and a third child on the way and going. And so there was part of just a personal look. Make sure you are making grown-up decisions in looking at this here at the moment. Um, But then from a business perspective, I just recall doing, we were modeling and doing predictions each month. And each month we'd be coming under those predictions, thinking we're just being too optimistic here. But this other area of the business seems to be very attractive. We're good at it. And we'd also taken on some new investors, um, proper angel investors, you know, who'd put a few hundred thousand into the business. And they turned out, they were good people, but they were the wrong people for me. Um, and one thing I, had le- I have learned over time is when you're going after money, don't just take the money the people that come with the money and how they're going to approach it are absolutely critical. And that's, you know, I made that error once and will never do that again. So the, all these things, the person, the business um, sort of came together at the same time. And, and it then actually became a relatively, although it was a very big decision, it became relatively easy. Well, because it was, it was clear. and And again, it goes back to make decisions. Don't, don't, just drag things along. Something needs to be cut, cut it and move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we really started to, to see some, you know, some interesting opportunities after that.
0: So, on the subject of investment, cause you, you, you're touching on that. and This is obviously a big topic that people, you know, people in a startup or people in business are focused on raising money and raising investment. Yeah, could you give us an example? Because you said the, the sort of cultural fit, almost, of the the money with the with you or the founder. Could you give us an example of where that play, how that played out? Like, where, what was this kind of like? What how that kind of. What was an example of how that wasn't really- I
1: remember one example when we did ultimately start to to grow a bit and I had now spent um, probably two years at this point on on you know taking a very very low um, salary out of uh, you know a, a pittance level salary really um, out of the business and we were starting to see better results and and you know, as I mentioned before, we hadn't my wife hadn't been in for a lot of that period of time. She was probably by now back at work. And we had the three kids at this point. And and so I wanted to put my pay up a bit. And I was very happy looking at the numbers, going, Yeah, I can do this. And the shells said, No, no, we're not happy with that. And and it was it was a sort of, I guess, so it was a bit of balls of blue out of for me going. Yeah, but I'm going to. What? Well, why? You can't stop me. Mm. I go, well, actually, we're, we're a shareholder. And they couldn't outvote me on it. But um so you can't really go against the shareholders to do this. And that was the point. Again, I made a decision, right, well, I'm going to have to ha- not have any shareholders then. Um, so over the course of the next uh, year, I bought those shareholders out, took debt on to do it. Um, they made a very nice return, actually, because they made about – they made about 100% return in two years. Um, so that wasn't too shabby. And I just thought <laughs> that um, I'm not going to go back to what it felt like a bit beforehand. If I'm going to take all of the pressure of when things aren't going well, um, then I'm I'm going to run this the way I feel I want to run it now and that means um, I can't have shareholders so it's not that I'm against that and and it's just that for me they were good people but they weren't the right people for me and my business at that time mm, interesting so, so you've got this um Real
0: kind of clarifying moments in the very early stages of, of the National Schools Partnership, both in terms of strategy the, the, of the product, yeah. the proposition, and then of the um, uh, shareholders, and so you've got this. So you after you kind of got your, you've shifted the strategy. And you've got bought out your, these business partners and taken on the debt. I guess this is a kind of another moment of this is this has got to work. The, the stakes are raised somewhat, even though you're kind of perhaps getting the seeds of what was yet to come. Yeah. So, so could you just describe what was the strat- the second plan B strategy and 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 what happened after you kind of brought these people out?
1: Well, the strategy at that point, I where have we got to then? We were sort of Probably three years in total into the last eighteen years when when I think I bought out the early sh- the early shareholders. So we st- had started having our first clients. You know, um, uh, I think Morrison's was an early client. Um, a few very very small. Um, Organization. Our first client actually took us to court. Um, uh, no, we took our first client to court. That, that's a different thing altogether. So we, we learned a lot as we went on. But the principle of this was we knew that the most important thing in a in a parent, in a family's life is their children. And after the health and general well-being of their children, it's it's their development, their opportunity. Um, their education parents want to do and provide the best for their children that we can. And so we applied very simple logic to this at that point, saying, right, well, so all you brands who are trying to make yourself really important to uh, to these parents, you know, saying, hey, bias, we're brand A, we're really cool, our cars are like this, our banks are like that. We just said, look, that will never, ever even scratch the importance to these families as their own children. So why don't you just do more to help their children? Why don't you bring your skills, your assets, your your people, your products to do something that genuinely helps young people and you will see your popularity rise? And so that was the sort of first, um, if you want, nub of a proposition that we started taking out to market. Bearing in mind, because of the way we'd started as national sponsorship, we also had relationships now with tens of thousands of teachers and schools across the UK, covering every single age group, region, type of organisation you could think of. We say we're already working with the schools, the teachers, the college, so we can do something which everyone wins from. So we set up this simple model, which was anything we do, It has to benefit young people. It has to benefit the people who look after those young people, so their teachers or parents. And it has to benefit the business or the brand. And it must be win-win-win for all three. And whilst the work started, a lot of it was around sort of classroom uh, content and resources being provided for teachers and schools. It, It changed over time from that consciously to move beyond just classroom education into digital environments, home environments, then beyond that into um, beyond formal education into issues to do with skills and employability until it's got really to where it is now, which is all about every organization's touch point with young people, whether they're looking at them as a market, whether they're looking at them as future talent, or whether they're trying to have a social impact policy. it, It formed from that early point um, and those decisions we made some fifteen years ago, if we hadn 't made them, we would not have got to where we are now so again, to so looking
0: back at that you can see some these sort of threads started to pan out and what i 'm curious about is that this sort of idea of the social or societal impact of a program of activity, which is perhaps more. Uh, Accepted now, perhaps you know, it's more of a thing where people might think that. But 15 years ago, was there a kind of um, – what, what was the world look like and how do you – you have this vision for that thing and these three uh, metrics that have to be be met, yeah. right? But but, but surely I – mean, I can imagine a lot of kind of corporate marketers going, yeah, but I've got to,
1: like, you know, shift some crisps. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there was – it, it was really interesting time back then because some – some uh, businesses, some brands get it, and they actually I can see that if people ge- have genuine respect for us, they see what we're doing, they see we have a positive impact, and I think it's Richard Branson who turned a coin, uh, turned term, a phrase of um, um, per- having a purpose beyond profit, and and there were those who really got that and saw that if we put these roots in place, we're just going to be able to operate better. And there were some who weren't. And some would go, "Well, you know, I've got to shift this many units of cat food in Q3." And you know, a well-known confectionery brand at the time was doing a promotion where the more chocolate you ate and wrappers you kept, they'd give sports equipment to your school. And we were sort of going, "That's Mm. just that's just insane. You can't Mm. connect buying chocolate with your kids." being sporty and healthy they didn't work and um so that's why it was really interesting at the time because we were pushing this this message that as you just said is much more accepted now have a purpose in the world but when we were first pushing it not everyone really wanted to hear it not everyone really believed it um but a lot of the clients we sort of been work we work with now we've been working with for a, a you know a decade plus because they see what comes to them when they have a real positive societal impact and purpose and then build their business more with that in mind rather than just chase next quarter's um, you know, product sales alone. And what are those benefits? Well, right now, the, the benefits are not only positive now, but they're also protecting against negative because – People's ability to operate uh, with, especially young people, with social, uh, social media and other channels means that if they perceive you to be the supermarket that's doing the least to prevent single-use plastic going into the environment... They will be on your case, and and they will hunt you down, so as to speak, and they will criticize your brand, your business, your people, Um, as opposed to if you're the supermarket who is really seen to be leading the change, they will actually warm towards you. And that translates into real money, hundreds of millions of pounds of real money and revenue for supermarket A and B in that example, because a fraction of a percentage of these young people as they become – shoppers in their own right coming to you or steering away from you and that's just the piece about customers there's also the piece about talent you know and we there, there is an issue in the country at the moment with companies attracting finding the best talent especially young talent so if people want to come and work for you or if they don't want to come work for you that's a flip side again of, of millions of pounds of, of benefit or cost
0: and how did those, um, so this idea of purpose beyond profit, how does that uh, translate into somebody perhaps in a smaller business or a founder-led business, entrepreneur-led business, perhaps a startup or someone who's like kind of, or maybe someone in a smaller business, all right? So you're not Tesco or yeah. Morrison's or whoever. And so why should this be a consideration for
1: you? It should be a consideration because it's the, it, well, it party depends on the entrepreneur and the culture they want to work in. When I... When I started this business, I still remember the, the two sessions I had sitting down at our kitchen table, one when I was trying to come up with the name of it with four or five friends. Um, the other was when I just thought, what do I want the place I work in to be like? And I wrote three things down then um, that I still now today talk to – every new joiner in our business about. Um, Although if I said now I wouldn't need to talk about it again. But um, I wrote down I wanted it to be an ambitious environment. People feel they could be ambitious for each other, for themselves, Mm. for the work, for the clients, for young people. I wrote down trust. I've really wanted to work in an environment where everyone trusted each other. Um, Mm. And then I wrote down nice people. I just thought I want to work with people I enjoy working with. Why, if I can control it to some extent Mm. i'll work with nice people so i wrote those three things down and going back to it's about why does it matter to a small startup and entrepreneur It, it matters because the tone you set in the culture at the very beginning will affect your first employee and then your second and your third and then those three will affect your 4th, 5th, and 6th, and they will affect the 10 after that. You set the culture, the purpose, the, the, the benefit that you have to the world, apart from just making some money, if you set that tone at the beginning and you are consistent with it, it will keep going decades later because others will live those values for you. So however you want to do it, set that culture really, really clearly, strongly and then live it um and and that then becomes a huge part of who you are if you don't then either it's a bit random how a culture develops or the risk is with if you start when it becomes a lot about chasing the money obviously in the beginning if everyone thinks that's the purpose of the business you turn into a Culture business, which is a money chasing business. which some people may love, and it may be hugely profitable, but for me, it could never only be about that. Because, um, you know, I'd have gone, and friends of mine went and worked in the city and staggering sums of money, um, but not something that ever appealed to me. Yeah, it's funny actually, In my observation,
0: anyway, my experience in business, I'm very much led by the heart as well as the head and probably could have made a lot more money if I'd been a bit more like, you know, chase the money kind of thing. But in some way, that's a choice one can make in terms of how you want to live. So the people you're working for, the people you're working with, the sort of substance and quality of the moment that you're in should be informed by that. And it has a qualitative aspect to it that it itself is a form of purpose for you. And it actually, we find this with retaining team. We've got um, a small company, and I think most people in the company, 15 people full-time, most people have been with us for over five years, and three people for over 11 years. And that's not including the founders. Mm-hmm. So, so but the point is it has a value. You're not gonna have them to hire and rehire, and the people who stick with us because they've got a qualitative thing in there that's good over and above the job and the pay.
1: I distinctly remember something that stuck with me. Uh uh a world challenge. And um there was uh, a guy I was working with there, he was senior to me, he was I think he was running his sort of finance and personnel function and he and he left and he went to work in a back office role in, in a bank in the city. Um and he I think he trebled his salary, I've been called about the time. And we caught up with him a while later uh, over a beer. And the one thing he said was The one thing I I just can't buy is that feeling when I get up in the morning of how I feel about going to work. And he said, I get up now going, oh, work. I've got to go to work today. And I'm not saying you want a thing where you leap out of joy, (laughs) you leap out of joy going, yeah, it's work today. But the difference in your mind of going, right, come on, let's go and get on with something as opposed to, oh, shit, I've got to go and do this job. That's you know, that is just worth, I don't know, it's it's worth a life, really, uh, a working life at least. And so obviously, you, you you need to be earning enough money for you. But if it's only about the money, you know, that that's, that's tough. I, I've had bits of time where the money is without being, without doubt being the absolute dominant thing. And that's always because of the absence of it. Yes, yeah, sure. And, um, but other than that, if you can get yourself going to a level that's good enough, you've got to be enjoying what you're doing. I mean, mm.
0: really, that's the greatest gift that you can give yourself as an entrepreneur. Well, from my experience, is the quality of life component that you enjoy it. And yeah, there's ups and downs and what have you, but it's a, it's a sub, substantively you enjoy it. All right, so we've been we've had a, a really fantastic sort of zoom in through your sort of entrepreneurial life, and it's very and in many moments. I'm dishing out lots of great advice and wisdom. But one question I like to ask people
1: is: is what advice should entrepreneurs ignore? Um, I would ignore the advice that you had need to have a completely original idea. You, you, you don't, I mean. You know, how many people start up restaurants? Restaurants, there are lots of restaurants. Uh, you know, start up shops selling clothes, start up clothes around. So you don't have to do something that's never been done before. And if you're looking for that idea, you, it's, it's really, really hard. Just do something better instead. Um, I think that um, another, uh, that's one thing people should definitely ignore, that your idea has to be completely original in every way. Um, the other thing, to ignore is your inner voice, um, the inner voice that is saying, oh, God, don't do it because you might fail. Well, just ignore that voice because if you don't try to do it, you're sure as hell never going to succeed. Um, it's, it's one of the cliche ones that you'll, you know, you'll often hear from, from business people and entrepreneurs, but it's just so true. Take, make a decision, have a go at it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, you'll have learned so much from it that you'll probably be successful the next time. Mm, uh, sound advice,
0: very wise, from a man schooled in the British military who uh, can take a knock on the chin and keep going forward. Where can people find out more
1: about you, Mark? Oh, well, if you want to, then obviously uh, LinkedIn is good for me. Um, and uh, come to the company website wearefutures.com or just come and visit you know come and say hello grab a coffee in london or edinburgh or the west country and uh and also if it definitely if if you're if your startup or your big business is interested in how it understands and connects with young people future talent future entrepreneurs definitely please talk to me because i love that
0: well, you heard it, get in touch with him on LinkedIn, through his website, learn a bit about the future of uh, the world from all its young people, uh, which is just really important because there's all these very fast changing world that we're all in. And um, as Mark pointed out earlier, lots of stuff, that if you don't get your kind of tone right and your values right and your purpose right, could blow back at you out there in the world. Well, personally, I loved all that. I loved getting into all of it. So thank you for sharing so openly and and go and check him out online and I'll see everybody next time. Do you want to get the top five tidbits from each episode emailed to your inbox every Friday? Yes, you do. It saves you having to go through and make notes and make a note of all the books and all the ideas that are in the podcast. We go through, we choose the top five we like plus put all the links into that email. So if you just go up to honeyibleewupthebusiness.com, yes, that's honey, blewupthebusiness.com. and just enter your email address, there's a little box, just enter it in, and we will send you that information, and it saves you having to make notes and all that. That's uh, make your life a bit easier. And of course, if you did enjoy the episode, please consider subscribing. We are trying to help people through this. So the more people that subscribe, review, rate on Apple, Google, Podcasts, Spotify, the more people will see it and the more we can help. So help us help other people, other entrepreneurs like you. And before I go, I've got to say big up to my company, the tech department, the company we blew up and put back together again. They're generously supporting me on this mission through the podcast. So if you guys want to have a look at a company that can really help you improve your technology, make it better so your business gets better to boosting your sales and your profit and a bit more sanity in your life, a little less stress, then head up to the techdept.com, the tech department, uh, my company. Uh, give us a look. On behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time.